We pick up tonight in the middle of Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel's final vision in the book centers around a tour, angelically led, around a future and new temple. And so where we're at in the vision, he's been walked through uh, every area of the temple with an angel who's measured it out. He's recorded the measurements for us and given us a feel for every space um, and every piece of furniture within it. And then just as we saw back in the beginning of the book in chapters 8 through 11, where Ezekiel was given a tour of the temple in Jerusalem before it was destroyed and it was full of idolatry and wickedness, that was followed by an exit by the glory of the Lord that moved out away from the Holy of Holies out towards the east gate, and then out of Jerusalem entirely. So here in this vision, he sees this brand new temple, and then he sees the glory of the Lord coming and settling upon this new temple. What follows as we pick up here in verse 13 is the law of the temple, the Torah of the temple. In the same way that when the tabernacle was prescribed at Mount Sinai, after that were all the laws of life with God in the midst. So also Ezekiel has his own Torah, his own law. And one of the things that's really interesting is that it's not the same law. And so the rules that he lays out here are similar to the Mosaic Covenant, but they're not the same. And we'll see that as we move through here throughout. In fact, what we'll discover is that this vision of a new temple also is a vision of a new people, of a new Israel, of a new land, and with that, a new worship of the living God. Let's pick up in verse 13. These are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Remember, that's the long cubit, so not 18 inches, but a little bit over 20 inches. Its base shall be one cubit high and one cubit broad with a rim of one span around its edge, and this shall be the height of the altar. From the base on the ground of the lower ledge, two cubits with a breadth of one cubit, and from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits with a breadth of one cubit, and the altar hearth, four cubits, and from the altar hearth projecting upwards, four horns. Okay, so in other words, the altar is built like a wedding cake. It's a tiered tower of increasingly decreasing diameter, or I should say decreasingly diameter, right? The diameter gets smaller and smaller, um, and it's also relatively high, um, about 10 feet above the ground. Now, it also has a little bit of a basement level. There's a ditch dug around the edge of it for the collection of blood. But if you think of just a large uh, 10 foot by 10 foot by 10 foot cube, with, as we'll see, a staircase ascending up the side of it. Now, one of the reasons it's so big, quite a bit bigger than the altar in the tabernacle, which was just a few feet high, um, is because in this temple, remember, um, the people, even if they bring the sacrifices, are not allowed to the altar. Only the Levites are allowed to the altar 
and so this is high enough that from anywhere, even in the outer court, you can see the sacrifices as they're going on, but from a safe distance, if you will. Uh, it also has four horns sticking up on the altar, just as all of the other altars of Israel had had. Verse 17, the lead shall also be square, 14 cubits long by 14 broad, with a rim around it half a cubit broad and its base one cubit all around. The steps of the altar shall face east. Now remember we talked about last time we gathered the geography of the temple is laid out on an east to west orientation. Okay, and so if you started in the eastern outer gate, you would walk into the outer court and then into the eastern inner gate and then into the inner court and right at the center there would be the altar. And then if you kept heading east, or excuse me, kept heading west, you would walk into the holy place and then finally the holy of holies. And so here, as the priests come up the steps and offer the sacrifice on the altar, what are they facing? They're facing the temple proper. They're facing the holy place and the holy of holies. Verse 18, he said to me, son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar. On the day when it is erected for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it, you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, we'll have more to talk about them in a little bit, who drew near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the ledge upon it, the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. And so before the altar could be used, it needed to be dedicated and it was dedicated with a sin offering, which makes atonement, covers the sins of the people so that the altar is holy, so that the altar is pure. Verse 21, you shall also take the bull of the sin offering and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple outside the sacred area. And on the second day, you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering and the altar shall be purified as it was purified with the bull. When you finish purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering towards the Lord. So there's a sin offering on the first day. The second day, there's another sin offering and then there's a burnt offering. Now, we call it burnt offering in the, uh, in the English Bibles, but the word ulah here uh, that Ezekiel uses, the same one that's used in Leviticus, actually means the offering of ascension, okay? It's just like what smoke does, right? Smoke ascends, okay? And so what makes this offering different than the sin offering is that this one is wholly consumed upon the altar, okay? Now, if you go back and you read the book of Leviticus, the burnt offering is more important to Israel's worship than the sin offering. The sin offering just cleans the slate so that you can offer this burnt offering. And then usually the burnt offering is followed by another offering called the fellowship offering, okay? And so we have atonement, where your sins are dealt with, that's expiation, sins are cleansed. And then you have uh, um, consecration, okay? And so the second sacrifice, the ascension offering or the burnt offering, it was a reflection of the fact that you want to give your whole life to God, okay? So the sin offering, you deserve to die this animal dies in your place. The burnt offering, you want to ascend into the heavens to be with God. This animal ascends in your place. The fellowship offering is not wholly consumed on the altar. 
but it is shared with the offerer and his family and his friends. In fact, we'll see that the temple has a lot of room for fellowship offering picnics, okay? And so notice the order here. It's atonement or expiation, and then it's consecration or sanctification, and then it's fellowship or union, okay? This is the process of how Israel was to approach God. And we see that Ezekiel lays out the same thing here. Now notice we're on day two here, and so what we're looking at is a seven-day dedication of the temple, okay? And so we pick up in verse 25, for seven days you shall provide daily a male goat for the sin offering, also a bull from the herd, and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be provided. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar and cleanse it, and so consecrate it. And when they've completed these days, then from the eighth day onward, the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord your God. So here it begins with this dedication of the temple. It begins with seven days of sacrifices, and then temple worship proper begins. Okay? Now, notice in chapter 44, verse 1, he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Now, in the beginning of the last chapter, that's where the glory of the Lord enters into the temple. And so it comes through the east gate, and because of that, it becomes the Lord's gate. It's his personal access. And one of the significance to these gate, this gate being shut is because unlike his exit from the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed, this is to be a permanent dwelling place for God. This is to be a place that he will not forsake because the people that he's created are a new people. Israel is a new Israel. Their priesthood is a new priesthood. Their sacrifices are new. And so here, by closing this gate, God expresses his commitment. I am here to stay. Okay. And so the gate is supposed to stay shut, but notice verse 3. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Let's deal with the second half of that first. The vestibule would be the inner gate. Okay, So the outer gate of this um, long tunnel is closed, the one that faces the rest of the city. The inner one is open, and so the prince can come in here and sit inside the gate, and when he worships, and when there's a fellowship offering, that's where he eats it. Okay? Now, the question becomes, what prince? Who are we talking about here? And Ezekiel doesn't tell us, but it is significant, a couple of things. Um, first off, as we've talked about, Ezekiel, when he talks about the leaders of Israel, prefers the phrase prince or ruler to the phrase king. Okay. The only exception is when he talks about the messianic king who is to come, but everyone else is merely a prince, just a ruler. Okay. And so this prince is a human ruler over a future Israel. Okay. The next thing I want you to notice, and we'll see this as it goes along, the prince has a place of honor and a part to play in the national worship of Jehovah. Okay. But he also has some really clear restrictions. And this is one of them. Remember that the access to the temple is laid out um, in rings of holiness, okay? And so the outer court, that's where the people can come. And then the inner court, that's where the Levites and only the Levites can come. 
And then the temple proper, that's where the Zedekites, right, a certain type of Levite can come. Where's the prince? He's in the outer gate of the outer court. He's not, you know, front row seats. He's not given access. If you remember in the Old Testament, there was a king named Uriah, and he makes the mistake of mixing together his political authority and the religious practices of Israel. And so he decides, you know what, I'd like to offer a sacrifice. And he waltzes into the temple, not being a priest, but being a king, and seeks to worship God and breaks rank, if you will. And he's instantly struck with leprosy. Okay. In fact, when we look at the kings throughout Israel, we find all sorts of misbehavior in relationship to the temple. We find kings who plunder the temple treasury. All the offerings that the people gave for the worship of God, they used to pay off their enemies. They used to fleece their own pockets. Okay? We, find, um, we find kings who come in and establish altars for other gods right there within the temple. And you can imagine why they do so, right? It's, I'm the king, I make the decisions, I'm top of the food chain. You do what I ask you to. The prince here is a representation that government has a place, but it is put in its place. And it's a proper place, but it will not be reached out. And so he's at the very outside. There's a special place for him, but it's not an inner circle place. It's not, you know, um, backstage access, but actually in the very outer limits where the gate has been closed, okay? Continuing here, verse four, then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face, and the Lord said to me, son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary, and say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations. In admitting foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple, when you offer to me my food and the fat and the blood. Now, when is it in Israel's history that they had allowed foreigners into the temple? The practice in those days, and again, we can observe this in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, is sometimes they would take the plunder of war, specifically slaves of war, okay, people who were conquered, and they would turn them into temple servants. So these people there weren't, weren't there to worship the God of Israel, and they weren't there as appointed priests who shouldn't belong. They were just, you know, running errands, getting water, things like that. But it wasn't something God had instituted. It wasn't something that God had allowed. And it's a manifestation of what was wrong with the old Israel. That they just, instead of desiring to serve the Lord themselves, and if you go all the way back to Exodus, we find this class of servants being set up, and it's supposed to be Israel. They're supposed to desire to be in the temple to be close to the presence of God, to serve him in all humility. Think of what David says in the Psalms. I would rather be, he says, a gatekeeper in your house than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Better is one day in your courts, the courts of your temple, than thousands elsewhere. But they had um, outsourced this job to foreigners. When we do that, it shows a lack of significance, a lack of value. 
And so here, the glory enters into the temple, and he's giving Israel a reminder of where they were, and he says, no more. Verse um, 7 continues here. You have broken my covenant in addition to all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh of all the foreigners who are among all the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me, going astray from me after their idols, when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment. They shall be the ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple. Okay, now we can get thrown off today because of that word minister, because in some church circles, that means the leader. It means the pastor, right? The word here is just servant. So no longer are foreigners going to be the ones carrying the water. Instead, it's going to be the Levites. And as we saw last week, this is a holiness provision, okay? The, the Levites are the ones who are set apart to serve God, and so they are given a new role here, and it's a step down. So they're in the place of the people of Israel. They're in the place of being able to go around the altar, but no longer are they allowed to go to the temple like Levites used to be. Okay. The people here are moved back a rung as well, and so they, through the Levites, can accomplish these things, but it's as if um, you know, on the rungs of holiness, everybody's dropped down a notch. Okay? And so here, they're to be ministering, verse 11, in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple, and ministering in the temple, they shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before the people to minister to them, because they ministered to them before idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore, I've sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, and they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near me to serve me as a priest, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy, but they shall bear their shame and abominations they have committed. Yet I appoint them to keep charge of the temple and to do all its service and all that is done in it. And so notice it's judgment and mercy. He could have just said, no more Levites ever. And instead, he says, I'm going to put you in a humble place. I'm going to put you in a lower place, but there's still a place for you here. Verse 15, but the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, okay? Now, if you go back, you may remember the high priest came from the line of Aaron, right? One of the families within the Levitical priests. Here, it's from the line of Zadok. And if you're not familiar, it's the Zadokites who stand with, uh, with Solomon, okay, in the days after David. One of David's sons, Abishai, if I remember right, it might be Abijah, I, I get them confused. One of them decides in David's old age, he's going to appoint himself king, and a whole bunch of the priests run to his side and go, we're for that. But the Zedekites, they come to David and go, hey, David, this isn't right, what's going on here? And Bathsheba and Nathan, the prophet, who had been a close friend of David, they and the Zedekites come together and appoint Solomon as king instead. Okay, and then apparently, we find that the course of the history from there on, the Zedekites remain faithful. They're the remnant of the priesthood who don't get sucked into the idolatry of the nations and the downward spiral of Israel. And so he has a special place for them, and it's almost as if they become the collective high priest. 
okay? No high priest is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, but there is higher priests, plural, and that's those from the Zedekite line, okay? And so notice, they uh, did not go astray, and they shall, verse uh, 15, stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall approach my table to minister me, and they shall keep my charge. When they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments. They shall have nothing of wool on them while they minister at the gates of the inner court and within. And they shall have linen turbans on their head and linen undergarments around their waist, and they shall not bind themselves with anything that causes sweat. And when they go out into the outer court of the people, they shall put off the garments in which they have become ministering, and they will lay them on the holy chambers, and they shall put on other garments, lest they transmit holiness to the people with their garments. So notice here, they have special clothes just for access to the temple and the inner courts that are never to leave the inner courts. So if they go out where the people are in the outer courts, they change into their casual wear, which is probably still a uniform, but not their set-apart-for-the-Lord-holy garments. What's striking about this, isn't it, is it where it ends. It says, lest they transmit holiness to the people with their garments. You would expect it to say, lest the people transmit unholiness to them, and they carry it into the temple. But the concern is the other way around. Okay? You see, Holiness is contagious. Holiness is contagious in the tabernacle, and the reason it makes it dangerous is because once you become holy, you're set apart for the Lord. Okay. So, I mean, just as an illustration, think of the Nazarite vow. That was a voluntary decision that any Israelite could make for a period of time to serve the Lord in a specific way. And because of that, there were all sorts of restrictions. Nazarites weren't supposed to drink, drink wine. They weren't supposed to cut their hair. They weren't allowed to attend funerals. Okay? All of that is because in a significant way, they've become set apart for God. And so their focus is unto him and all of those other things. It's not that they're bad things or good things. They're just not God things. It's a time of dedication. And so the danger here is that those who are common, which is not a negative thing, uh, if, you, if you read the Old King James, those that are profane, not a negative thing, just not set apart for God. And that's a dangerous condition to be in because there's places that are not God places, if you will. Okay? And so they're to take care here to change their clothes before they come in and out. It reminds me of Disneyland, right? Those who are in costume in Disneyland, they never change in front of people and when they go home for the day, they leave their costume behind. In the park, they are Snow White. Outside of the park, they are not. And Disney is very clear on that, right? You can't just forget and drive home in your costume. You will lose your job, okay? But the concern here is not just about maintaining the mystery, which is what it is for Disneyland, right? They don't want anyone to see, you know, um, uh, Mickey Mouse in line at McDonald's. But here it's about the purpose of the temple and the purpose of the Zedekites and the holiness, the attention, the focus that God requires. Remember the burnt offering? Consumed completely on the altar, dedicated totally to him, 100%. Continues here, they shall not shave their heads or let their locks grow long. They shall surely trim the hair of their heads. 
Both cleanly shaving your head as well as growing it out long are both associated in the Old Testament with pagan forms of worship. And so the idea here is that they're to walk the straight and narrow. Even in their haircuts, it's to be clear that they have no association with these other things. They belong to God. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. Now, both of those things sound like Nazarite things, side note, but it also reminds us of another thing. Days after the tabernacle opens in the book of Leviticus, and the tabernacle goes through a dedication just like this, the sons of Aaron go into the tabernacle, and what it tells us is that they offer strange fire. And because of that, fire comes out from the altar and consumes them, and day two of the temple being opened, excuse me, the tabernacle, ends up being a day of mourning, because two have died, okay? But when we keep reading in Leviticus, we discover that one of the things they did was that they went about it drunk. Okay, they had too much to drink, they showed up for their Levitical priesthood, and they made mistakes, and it cost them their lives, okay? Most bottles of wine should say, do not operate heavy machinery, do not make offerings at the tabernacle, okay? It's the same idea here. And so in the same way here, there's a reminder of that. And it's a second reminder as well of how quickly things go wrong in the Old Testament, right? Mount Sinai, the very presence of God. Moses is receiving the commandments from God and Israel builds a golden calf. Tabernacle is set up. God fills it with his glory and Aaron's two sons get drunk and walk into the tabernacle and lose their lives. But here, that stuff is handled up front, okay? There's an idea throughout this passage of this is going to work. This is permanent. This isn't going to lead to the downward spiral and the destruction as it did last time. Verse 22, they shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but only virgins of the offspring of the house of Israel or a widow, widow who's the widow of a priest. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between unclean and the clean. In a dispute, they shall act as judges and they shall judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed feasts and they shall keep my Sabbaths holy. In general, this is just the job description of the Levites in the Old Testament. But here, notice it's given to the Zedekites, right? This inner circle. The Levites are just serving in the tabernacle, but the teaching and the judging, that's left to the Zedekites. Verse 25, they shall not defile themselves by going near a dead person. However, for father or mother, or for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister, they may defile themselves. Okay. So this isn't a heartless idea. Inner circle family, go to the funeral. Defile yourselves, yeah, you're going to have to go through a seven-day period and a cleansing ritual and all of that, but take the time off from work, it's okay. But beyond that, again, they were to be dedicated wholly to the Lord. Remember that Ezekiel is a Levite, and he has had a taste of this in his own life. Because God came to Ezekiel about halfway through the book, and he says, Ezekiel, I'm going to take your wife who you love home with me. She's going to die, and you're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to throw a funeral. You're not allowed to talk about it publicly. Instead, I want you to be a picture of what's about to happen because when Jerusalem is sacked, there will be no time for mourning as everybody's just marched off. And so he's experienced this firsthand. Okay. 
Um, verse 26, after he's become clean, they shall count out seven days for him, and on the day that he goes into the holy place, into the inner court to minister in the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. This shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. Okay, and so the priesthood was to eat the offerings of Israel. That was how they were fed. Okay? And the first of all the first fruits of all kinds, and every offering of all kinds from all your offspring shall belong to the priests. You shall also give to the priests the first of your dough, that a blessing may rest on your house. The priest shall not eat of anything, whether bird or beast, that has died of itself or been torn by wild animals. Now the majority of this, again, is just a restatement of what it means to be a priest in Israel. There are some differences in places, and they're not easy to explain, and I would suggest to you the reason is because it's the fact that they're different that matters, and we'll come back to that, okay? Chapter 45. When you allot the land as an inheritance, you shall set apart for the Lord a portion of the land as a holy district, 25,000 cubits long, 20,000 cubits broad, and it shall be holy throughout, in its whole extent, okay? This is about eight by six and a half miles. That's why it says district here. This is, this is not just a lot, you know, just for scale. Capitol Hill, okay, from Madison to downtown, from um, Montlake to First Hill and Central District. That's about two miles square, okay? So four times that is to be set aside as a holy district here. Verse 3. And from this measured district you shall measure off a section 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 broad, in which shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be for the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests who minister in the sanctuary and approach the Lord to minister him. And it shall be a place for their house and a holy place for the sanctuary. Okay, so think of this, this rectangle. Um, two and a half by one, 10,000 by 25,000, okay, a rectangle that's just a little bit more than twice as long, and right in the middle of it is the temple, and the rest of the district is where the Zedekites live, around the temple, okay? Then, verse 5, another section, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits broad, okay, so another rectangle here, put it right beneath the other one, okay, and it shall be for the Levites who minister at the temple as their possession for the city to live in it. So effectively, what we have here is a square in two halves. In the top half is the Zedekites in the temple, and in the bottom half is the Levites, okay? Along the portion set apart as the holy district, you shall assign for the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits broad and 25,000 cubits long. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel, okay? We'll get more about that later, but there's going to be this significant section that serves another purpose. And then notice verse 7, on, uh, and to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district and the property of the city alongside the holy district and the property of the city on the west and on the east, corresponding to the length of one of the tribal portions and extending from the western to the eastern boundary of the land. It is to be his property in Israel. Okay, now I know this is hard to wrap your head around, so let's take that square we had of priests and to the left and to the right of it, I want you to put two vertical rectangles. Both of them, that belongs to the prince, okay? 
That's where the palace is, which remember is not just a place for the prince to live, it's where all of the upper level politics go on, okay? It's where civil court happens. It's where um, all of the governors gather. It's where the elders come to bring their cases for local issues, okay? And so notice, it's not near the temple at all. It's outside the priests on both sides, and it extends, it says here, as we'll see with these strips of tribal land. Um, and so it's a relatively long section. Okay. It says here, it is to be his property in Israel, and my princes shall no longer oppress the people, but they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. One of the problems of kings in the Old Testament was when they would use their power to buy up or to grab up or sometimes just to steal the land of other Israelites. Okay? Now, that might not seem uncommon to us because you know, when we think about presidents or prime ministers or these types of things, they have their private accounts and they have their private homes and maybe their second home and their third home. Okay? But remember, in the land of Israel, the land was owned by the Lord and Israel was merely tenants. And it was given out by lot and it belonged to your family and that meant that your son, 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 son was to give the, be given the same land. In fact, if you ever had to sell your land because of debt, the year of Jubilee would come and it would be returned to your family. Okay? And so the idea of perpetual landlessness in Israel was never to be a reality. But think of, um, um, think of King Ahab, right? He sees near the palace a guy named Naboth has a vineyard. And boy, he's keeping, keeping good care of it. It's got vintage grapes. And the king starts to think, I want a vineyard, and I want it to be turnkey. I want it to be everything I want. So he comes to Naboth, and he says, I'd like to buy your vine vineyard. I'll pay you like a king, because I am one. Okay. And Naboth says, I would never do that. Why would I sell for any price the inheritance of my fathers and my descendants? And so Naboth goes home and literally cries on his bed until Jezebel, his wicked wife, comes and goes, why are you crying? He says, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. She says, uh, you're a king, take it. And so he kills Naboth and takes the vineyard. Okay. That might be unique in the way that it is oppression in Israel, but it's not really that unique, is it? Right? People using their power and influence to get what they want, but here the princes were to be reigned in. They have property. It's honorably large, okay? as we'll see. That property, they can do with what they want, but the rest of the property belongs to Israel and not to the prince. Okay. Verse 9, thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel. Put away violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. You shall have just balances, a just ephah and a just bath, those are both measurements when you would measure grains, okay? It's like liters and gallons, if you will, okay? And so the second thing that the princes are supposed to be about is keeping the economy just, okay? They have a role to play, but even here, notice that the Bible recognizes the people who put their thumb on the scales of the economy, those in power. And so it's put here as a reminder, keep honest scales, okay? No inside trading, verse 14. And as the fixed portion of oil, measured in baths, one-tenth of a bath from each core, the core, like the homer, contains ten baths. Okay? So it's just standardized here. I think if you were an Israelite and you read this, they'd think, yeah, we know that. 
And that's the point. He says, you know what the measurements are. Use them accurately. And one sheep from every flock of 200 from the watering places of Israel for grain offering, burnt offering, and peace offerings to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. Effectively here is a tax. Okay? You're to take one animal from every herd, okay? whether animal or oxen. You're to take a certain amount of grain, and it's to be for the continuous ongoing worship of Israel as a nation collectively. Okay? So Israelites still would have their individual responsibilities of worship but there's to be a national participation. We all worship God together in the form of this um, tax. Verse 16, All the people of the land shall be obliged to give this offering to the prince in Israel. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, and all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide for the sin offerings, the grain offerings, the burnt offerings, the peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. And so he has this tax that comes in and then from that and from his own resources, if there's a great feast in Israel, he takes care of all the sacrifices. Okay? The national worship of Israel comes from accounts that he manages and he is responsible for. Okay? Verse 18, thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a bowl from the herd without blemish and purify the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the temple, the four corners of the ledge of the altar and the posts of the gate of the inner court. You shall do the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance, and so you shall make atonement for the temple. So on top of this initial seven-day dedication, every new year begins with a seven-day atonement ritual. And here we're not told offer on all seven days, but here's what the first day looks like, and here's what the seventh day looks like. And then notice, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall celebrate the feast of Passover. And for seven days of unleavened bread shall be eaten. On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. And on the seven days of the festival, he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven young bulls and seven rams without blemish on each of the seven days and a male goat daily for a sin offering. And he shall provide as a grain offering an ephah for each bull and an ephah for each ram and a hin of oil to each ephah. And in the seventh month, on the 15th day of the month and for the seven days of the feast, he shall make the same provision for sin offerings, burnt offerings and grain offerings and for the oil. Now, here's a place where we really start to see the difference. Israel, in the book of Leviticus, has seven feasts. Okay? Three of those are referred to as being high feasts or pilgrimage feasts because every Jewish male who was an adult, so bar mitzvah, I think, age 13, had to travel to Jerusalem for three festivals every year. Okay? Let's see if I can remember what they are. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But here, when we look at this year, we only have three things. We have the new year, we have the Passover, and then we have this thing in the seventh month. Now, in the seventh month in the old calendar were three feasts, back to back. Okay? That was kind of the center of the religious calendar. But here it's all stripped out, and the only one that's named by name is Passover. What happened to tabernacles? What happened to the other festivals? They're not named. Okay. Chapter 46. Thus says the Lord God, the gate of the inner court 
that faces east shall be shut on the six working days, but on the Sabbath day it shall be opened, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. Okay? So the outer gate we've already seen is to be perpetually shut. The inner gate is only open on Saturdays, the Sabbath, and on new moons, okay, right after the full moon, beginning of a lunar calendar month. Um, continuing here, verse 2, the prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate from the outside and shall take his stand at the post of the gate and the priest shall offer his burnt offerings and the peace offerings and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. So when the gate is open, that's when the prince can come and do his own personal worship. And notice here, he's not seated in the external gate, but can come into the entrance of the internal gate where he's got a nice view of the altar and can just worship there before the Lord. He can't exit that gate because that would put him in the place where only Levites go. Okay? In fact, this gate is not a place where anyone else is allowed who's not a Levite or a Zedekite, okay, except the king. So again, excuse me, the prince. So again, we see there's honor here. A way is made for him, but it's a contained way. Okay. Uh, it continues here, the priest shall offer his burnt offering and the peace offering, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he'll go out but the gate shall not be shut until the evening. The people of the land shall bow down at the entrance of the gate before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. Okay. And so again, this provides them with a view into the inner court. Now I've suggested to you that the inner court was unwalled. Okay. So although it was higher than the outer court, you'd be able to see the temple and the altar from the outer court. There are others who believe differently. This would make sense of that philosophy. They, they basically say, Ezekiel doesn't mention a wall, but we should assume one. In that case, the only time that Israel can see the altar, and maybe even the temple, which is a little bit higher, so they'd be able to see it from certain vantage points, but the only time they can really see the inner court is through this one gate that's open one day a week, and through that, you know, they kind of gaze at the glory of God and worship Verse 4, the burnt offering that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering with the ram shall be an ephah, and the grain offering with the lamb shall be as much as he is able, together with a hen of oil to each ephah. Now again, the Mosaic Covenant has descriptions of the sacrifices and the grain and the oil that goes with it, and these ones are strikingly different. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. It's not something that you can really parse the logic, but the significant thing again becomes, this isn't, why is this not just a reconstitution of the Mosaic Covenant? Why does Ezekiel present a new Torah? Why does he give a new law? Okay, we'll come back to that. That's the big reveal for the night. Verse 6, on the day of the new moon, he shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and six lambs and a ram which shall be without blemish. As a grain offering, he shall provide an ephah with the bull and an ephah with the ram and with the lambs, as much as he is able, together with a hin of oil to each ephah. When the prince enters, he shall enter by the vestibule of the gate, and he'll go out by the same way. When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feast, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out the south gate, and he who enters by the south gate shall go by way of the north gate. No one will return by the way of the gate with which he entered, but each shall go out straight ahead. So see this, the east gate, remember, is closed. Nobody comes through there. There is no west gate. So if you come into the temple as a worshiper, it's either from the north or south, and you're to do your business at the center 
and then continue on and go out the other gate, right? Okay. Now, we're not really told why this is. To be honest, just for flow of traffic, it would make sense. Like, this reads like COVID restrictions, doesn't it? Okay, when you go to the grocery store, you come in one door, you have to go out the other, right? It may be that that's all this is because this uh, passage in Ezekiel puts a heavy emphasis on the fact that this temple is to be heavily used by lots of people, okay? But it also may have to do um, with maintaining this directional trajectory, okay? Uh, and so there's, there's no turning around, if you will, in the temple. There's no, no doubling back. There's no leaving the way you came. It's a process that you move through, just like the priest on the Day of Atonement starts at the east of the tabernacle and moves through all the way to the west. He doesn't veer to the left or to the right. It may be that there's symbolic emphasis um, that's being pointed out here. Verse 10, when they enter, the prince shall enter with them, and when they go out, he shall go out. Okay, no after-hours special access or anything. Verse 11, at the feasts and the appointed festivals, the grain offerings with a young bull shall be an ephah, and with a ram an ephah, with the lambs as much as one is able to give, together with a hen of oil to the ephah. And when the prince provides a freewill offering, which is just what it sounds like, a, I just want to worship you and give you this, Lord. Either a burnt offering or a peace offering is a freewill offering to the Lord. The gate facing the east shall be open for him, and he shall offer his burnt offering or peace offering as he does on Sabbath day. Then he shall go out, and after he's gone out, the gate shall be shut. Let's read one more paragraph and then we'll talk. You shall provide a lamb, a year old without blemish for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning you shall provide it. And you shall provide a grain offering with it morning by morning, one-sixth of an ephah and one-third of a hint of oil to moisten the flour as a grain offering to the Lord. This is a perpetual statute. Thus the lamb and the meal offering of oil should be provided morning by morning for a regular burnt offering. This is probably the most jarring place, okay? Maybe you, could me maybe you could argue that measurements change over time or that there's significance in them. But here, the daily sacrifice of Israel, which was morning and evening, becomes just morning by morning. Here is one of the most glaring differences. Now, some suggest, again, that these uh, that these differences don't really matter because Ezekiel's not trying to lay out something historical, past, present, or future. He's just trying to paint a vivid vision of a perfect worship. But these aren't vivid details, are they? They're boring. They're, they're precise. They're accountant details, not painter details, right? He spends very little time on the decor of the temple, but every measurement for every sacrifice, he's precise. So it must matter. It must mean something. Let's keep going. Verse 16, thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it'll belong to his sons. It's their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be to his year of liberty. That's uh, until his servant is set free. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it's his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. So in the same way that the king, excuse me, the prince, isn't allowed to steal land from others, he has the same protection and preservation for him. When he gives it to his kids, it becomes theirs. When he gives it to his servants, he puts it on loan until the year of jubilee, until the year of freedom. Okay? 
They become tenants instead of owners. Verse 18, the prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. Then he brought me through the entrance, which was at the side of the gate, to the north row of the holy chambers for the priests. And behold, a place was there at the extreme western end of them. And he said to me, this is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offerings and the sin offerings and where they shall bake the grain offering in order not to bring them out into the outer court, and so transmit holiness to the people. So we revisit the temple here, and he shows us a room that we didn't focus on, and this is basically the dining hall for the priests. Okay? Because remember, the food that they eat here is food that was dedicated to God. It's the people's sacrifices. Here they boil what's already been offered on the altar. Okay? They take their portion and they boil it and that's how they cook it. They take the grain that's been given to God and they bake it here, okay? But just like their clothes, the kitchen is holy. The food they eat, because it comes from God's portion, is holy. And so they have a designated area, verse 21. Then he brought me out to the outer court, that's the court of the people, and he led me around to the four corners of the court, and behold, in each corner of the court there was another court. In the four corners of the court were small courts, 40 cubits long and 30 broad, and four were the same size. On the inside and around the four courts were a row of masonry with hearths made at the bottom of the rows all around. Then he said to me, these are the kitchens where those who minister at the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. Okay. Remember, one of the sacrifices, the fellowship offering, was to be consumed by the people and their friends. Here's the prep kitchens for those. Okay. And there's a lot of them. Did you notice that? In all four corners, there are four units, okay? Um, and inside is a row of hearths, okay? So it can handle a whole bunch of people uh, offering their fellowship offerings at the same time. Okay, chapter 47. Now, that finishes kind of his description of the temple proper. And 47 and 48 begin to expand and look beyond the temple and into the rest of the city where the temple resides, and then into the rest of the land. But it begins with a trickle. Verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east, and behold, the water was trickling out the south side. Okay, so there's water here, just a trickle, coming out the steps that go up to the altar. And they run through the south, okay, and so he goes out, and notice he goes out through the north gate and comes around to the east of the temple. Why does he do that? Because he can't go through the east gate, it's closed. But when he gets to the east gate, out of the steps of the east gate, he sees this trickle, okay? So the river here runs southwardly and then kind of veers at the altar and heads west and comes out of the east side of the temple. Now, notice, it starts with a trickle, but verse 3, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. So they walk along this trickle for 1,700 feet, and they stop. And he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured another thousand, or seventeen hundred feet, and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Now get the picture here. He's walking, 
1,700 feet at a time, away from the temple. And as he does so, this trickle of water is getting deeper. Okay. Now, that's not how rivers work. It is possible for a river's source spring to be relatively small and then become gargantuan, you know, like the, the Yangtze or, or the Mississippi or these types of things. And how does that happen? Tributaries, right? Other small springs join into one big river. That's not what's happening here. This is just a trickle becoming deeper and deeper as you go on. It's a little bit mystifying. In fact, notice verse 5, again he measured a thousand, and it was a river I could not pass through. For the water had risen was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? What is he saying there? Are you getting it? Are you paying attention? Right? Look at this, Ezekiel. So notice two things here. We have a river flowing from the temple, and by the time it gets out, um, where are we at? You know, a couple, uh, maybe just under 60,000 feet. It's too deep to swim. Okay? It's a big river. And as we're going to see, it pushes all the way from this city, all the way across cross-cut of Israel to the Dead Sea. It's a large body of water. Side note, there are geographical problems with that but we'll come back to that. Then he led me back to the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw on the banks of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah and enters the sea. That's the Dead Sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Okay, first thing. If this is Jerusalem, and he never calls it Jerusalem, but it's pretty much Jerusalem, okay, then what is directly east of Mount Zion? The Mount of Olives, right? Remember, Jesus spends his evening in the Mount of Olives and then comes down and back up into Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley, okay? I've been there. You can stand on the Temple Mount and you can see a closed east gate. It has nothing to do with this gate. It was built, you know, by, um, uh, by the Ottoman Empire, if I remember right, in the 1400s. Um, but nonetheless, the, tra- the directions are right. And so you're looking at a hill that is actually higher than Mount Zion. What do rivers do? They flow down. Okay. And so we go, wait, how could it possibly get? And once you get past the Mount of Olives, you have a whole range of mountains. You know the Jericho Road? That roughshod road that Jesus tells a parable about? That's the length from the Mount of Olives to the Dead Sea. Okay. It's a big, mounty pass when you go there, it's where all the shepherds are, okay? You see them out there in their, with their goats leading them around the mountains. But somehow this river goes all the way to the Dead Sea. And more significantly, it makes the Dead Sea not dead, okay? Here's a couple of things. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth by sea level, okay? There's no place that you can stand on earth that is lower in its altitude than the Dead Sea, If the earth had a belly button, that's it. Okay, second, because it's so low, although the Jordan River, which is not a small river, flows into it, it doesn't really flow out. And because it's in a wilderness where there is very little greenery or anything else, basically what happens to the Dead Sea is extreme evaporation. And that evaporation leaves behind tons and tons of salt. And so it is also the saltiest body of water on the earth. So salty 
that the only things that live there are things that are too small for us to see, things that Israel wouldn't have known anything about, okay? So salty that you can't not float in the Dead Sea, okay? Because the saline is so high. And yet here he sees this river coming in and, as we'll see, replenishing the Dead Sea and making it a place teeming with life. Verse 9, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for the water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from En Gedi to Angolam, that's north to south. It'll be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be a very great many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, which would be the Mediterranean. Okay. Okay. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, there to be left for salt. Okay. So there will be areas of it that won't freshen out, and you'll still be able to mine salt from them. If you go today, Dead Sea botanicals, I guess they wouldn't be botanicals, but Dead Sea minerals are, are you know, sought world over. Okay. People harvest the minerals from these swamps. They'll still be there. And on its banks, verse 12, on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, which means that they'll just fruit all year long. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Okay, so what do we do with this? There's two directions we can go. One is to go, what's happening here is clearly miraculous. Remove the geography, because I'm actually going to explain that away in just a second. Just leave the fact that you begin with a trickle and get to a rushing river, and it's not through tributaries. It's not something that sounds natural. Not to mention, it conveniently flows from the base of the temple itself. Okay. Second, it's so productive, it makes the Dead Sea live, and it leads trees to behave in a way that we've never achieved even in a laboratory where they bear fruit all year long, okay? There are certain fruits when we tend right fruit twice in a year. But this is a continuous yield, okay? Think of the lemon trees in California that are just always with lemons, okay? Um, but on the other hand, when we look at this, the details are also really specific, and most importantly, Ezekiel's not the only one who talks about this. And so you can say, well, that's just Ezekiel's vision. But listen to what Joel says in Joel chapter 3. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Chapter 3. In verse 18. He says, and in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of the Judah shall flow with water. And then notice this, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim, which would be the same place the Dead Sea is. Okay? So Joel makes the same point. And then finally here, look over at Zechariah chapter 14. Okay? Right before Malachi at the end of the Minor Prophets here. Let's look at 14, starting in verse 4. Okay, now this speaks of the return of the Messiah. Do you remember when Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives in front of all of his disciples? 
and they're all just sitting there slack-jawed looking up into heaven, and angels speak, and they say, why are you looking up into heaven? Don't you know that just as he left, so also he will come? With that in mind, read here in Zechariah verse 14, or 4 of 14. On that day, his feet, the Messiah's feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half shall move southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountain shall reach to Ezel. And you'll flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light or cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. So do you see what happens there? The Jericho Road basically splits in two and separates, creating a great valley. And then notice this, verse 8, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. Okay, two things. One, notice this river here splits and flows to both seas from Jerusalem. Second, it says it will be the same in winter as in summer. The reason is because that whole area around the Dead Sea has what the Old Testament calls wadis. Wadis are monsoon rivers, okay? So when the rain comes, it creates these rivers, and then with the summer, they dry out and disappear. And he's just saying, I'm not talking about the usual rain cycle. I'm talking about a full-blown, brand-new body of water river, one that makes the maps. And as it says here in Ezekiel, one that makes the Dead Sea live, okay? So there is a, not just a continuous emphasis of this on the prophets, but it makes sense of the geography, like it all comes together, okay? But nonetheless here, even if this river is a geographical and geological reality, it still clearly has significance. And one of the things that's clear here is from the temple flows basically a river that turns Canaan, or the land of Israel, into Eden, right? It goes from being a wilderness to a place of life and flourishing. Okay. There's a picture here, a personification of all of God's promises, and so it flows here from the temple, but it flows out into Jerusalem, and then presumably, symbolically, to the ends of the earth. All right. Going back to 47, almost done here, verse 13. Thus says the Lord God, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions, and you shall divide equally what I swore to give your fathers. The land shall fall to you as an inheritance. Just as in the days of Joshua, here there is a redistribution of the lots by the tribes. And not just the tribes of Judah, but even the tribes, the northern tribes that were taken out by Assyria 150 years before Ezekiel is writing. And he says, there's going to be a return to the land, and there's going to be a resettling, and there's going to be a redivision based on the 12 tribes. Okay. Verse 15, this shall be the boundary of the land on the north side from the great sea by the way of Hethlon to Labo Hamath and on to the Zadad, Berathath, Sirbium, which lies on the border between Damascus and Hamath, as far as the Hazer Hactions, which are on the border of Haran, so the boundary shall run from the sea, that's again the great sea, to Hazer Haran, which is on the northern border of Damascus, with the border of Hamath to the north. This shall be the north side. 
On the east side, the boundary shall run between Haran and Damascus, along the Jordan, between Gilead and the land of Israel, to the eastern sea as far as Tamar. This shall be the east side. That boundary, if you're curious about it, is the Sea of Galilee and then the Jordan down to the Dead Sea. Okay. Verse 19, on the south side, it shall run from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribah, Kadesh. Does that sound familiar, the waters of Meribah? Right? Remember in the Arabian Desert, in the book of Numbers, when Israel's going around, the waters of Meribah is the place where they wept um, because there they were tested. There along the brook of Egypt to the great sea, this shall be the south side. Okay? On the west side, the great sea shall be the boundary, the point opposite Labo Hamath. This shall be the west side. What does this mean? Okay? Basically, this is a little bit bigger than the land Israel ever had. Okay. It extends further into the south. Um, notice there it butts up against some of Egypt's smaller properties, so it extends all the way into the wilderness. But interestingly enough, it's missing a section of Israel proper. Okay. There's no Transjordan. Okay. Two and a half tribes in the book of Numbers in chapter 32, they come to Moses before the land is conquered and they go, you know what, this side of the Jordan we like quite a lot. We'd like to settle it with our families and we'd like to settle here. We'll go with you, we'll fight the fights, but we want to leave our families here and we want to return and settle here. That land is missing. As it should have been in the beginning, this time all 12 tribes will live in the land that God has given them. Not adjacent to the land, but in it themselves. Okay? Verse 30, uh, 21, So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you, and they shall have children among you. They shall be with you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Whoa. Non-Jewish people inherit the land of Israel, committed to obey the covenant and entering in, and they will be landowners in Israel as well, and they will own them as an inheritance. Verse 23. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Okay, then verse uh, 1 of 48, these are the names of the tribes beginning at the northern extreme beside the way of Hethlon to Labo Hamath as far as Hazer and Anne, which is the northern border of Damascus over against Hamath, and extending to the east side to the west, Dan, one portion. Now, we're not going to keep reading this, but here's what it looks like when it's done. Stripes across the land of Israel, running north to south, a total of 12 of them, one for every tribe except for Levi. Remember, they have their own special portion. So there's actually a 13th stripe. That's that holy land we talked about where the prince's land is. Okay? And they're equal in their height on the map. They're equal north to south. But as the land flexes, they're not equal east and west. But nonetheless here, notice that it's organized, it's ordered. Okay? And then um, as it's all the way down, it gets to um, Judah in the south. Um, and then notice verse 8, adjoining the territory of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the portion to which you set apart 25,000 cubits in breadth and length equal to the one tribal portion from east side to the west with the sanctuary in the midst of it. Okay, so there's tribes to the north of where the temple is and there's tribes to the south, but there's a special stripe just for that and in the middle of that stripe is that river we talked about that goes to the Dead Sea. Okay, so as it continues on here, Verse 9, the portion you shall set apart to the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits at length and 20 in breadth. We already saw that. Remember, half is Levites, half is Zedekites. 
These shall be the allotments of the holy portion. The priest shall have an allotment measuring 25,000 by 10,000. That's review, verse 11. These shall be for the consecrated priests, the sons of Zadok, who keep my charge, who did not go astray when the people of Israel went astray as the Levites did. And it shall belong to them as a portion, a holy portion of the land, a most holy place adjoining the territory of the Levites. And alongside those priests have the lot, uh, length which we read about. Okay. All right. Then notice this. This is new. Verse 15. The remainder of the 5,000 cubits in the breadth and the 25,000 length shall be for common use for the city. That's the first time that's been mentioned. For dwellings and for open country. In the midst of it shall be the city and these shall be its measurements. The north side, 4,500 cubits. The south side, 4,500 and the east side, 4,500, and the west side, 4,005 cubits. Okay, so in the area of the Levites, the temple is in the Zedekite portion, and the area of the Levites is a city. Okay, and the city is a perfect square. It's relatively sizable here, and it says in verse 17, the city shall have open land on the north, 250 cubits, and on the south, 250, and on the east, 250, and on the west. Okay, so imagine if you reversed Central Park in Manhattan. Here you have the center in the city and then you just have this beautiful preserved land wrapping around it, okay? Um, the remainder of the length alongside the holy portion shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 to the west and it shall be alongside the holy portion. Its produce shall be food for the workers of the city, okay? So this beautiful land is to be worked and that's how they provide for everybody it takes to run the city. Now that's a weird thing to say. What city needs workers, right? And if they work there, don't they get paid there? What's going on here? Notice here, uh, verse 21. What remains on both sides of the holy portion and the property of the city shall belong to the prince, remember that, extending from the 25,000 cubits to the holy portion on the east border and westward the 25,000 cubits to the west border parallel to the tribal portions shall belong to the prince. The holy portion with its sanctuary of the temple shall be in its midst, and it shall be separate from the property of the Levites and the property of the city, which are in the midst of that which belongs to the prince. The portion of the prince shall lie between the territory of Judah and the territory of Benjamin. In other words, starting at the north, it goes Judah, prince, holy portion, prince, Benjamin. Okay? As for the rest of the tribes from the east side to the west, and then it goes on and it walks through the last five tribes that take up the southern part of Israel. Verse 29, this is the land that shall, shall allot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and these are the portions, declares the Lord God. Now here's what I love about Ezekiel's telling of this. He just passes over that city, continues to cover the land, and then he finishes the book just talking about the city. Verse 30, these shall be the exits of the city. On the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, Three gates, the gates of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, Joseph, Benjamin, and Dan. On the south side are Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulon, and on the west side are Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. So it's a perfect square, each with three gates on each side, all of them named for the 12 sons of Jacob, Jacob the 12 tribes of Israel. That verse 35, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city that, uh, that from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Okay, the city is 10 by 10 miles. It's, it's not huge, but it's sizable. The question becomes first, what is it for? 
What it seems to be is that this city exists for the pilgrimage of all the tribes. It's like a giant hotel for traveling worshipers. Okay? That's why it needs workers. Because the city has standard year-round occupants who just live there to take care of the guests who are here to worship the Lord. Okay? So what do we do with all this? If you're familiar with your Bible, you probably go, well, doesn't this sound a lot like the end of Revelation? Isn't there a city and doesn't that have 12 gates? And aren't those 12 named for the 12 sons of Israel? And you'd be right. But when we get to Revelation, there is no temple in that city. And that city is not a perfect square, but a perfect cube. And it is much, much bigger. So what do we do with Ezekiel here? Is this just the longings of a Levite who saw the temple destroyed, imagining what it would be like if God set everything right? Why does he give a new Torah? Why does he set things different? Here's what I would suggest. As we saw, this river is going to, be, going to happen when Jesus returns. Okay? And then there's this period in Revelation where it says that Jesus will reign on earth for a thousand years. What I would suggest to you here is Ezekiel's vision pertains to that period of time. Now keep reading in Revelation. That's not the end of the story. It's at the end of that thousand years that the devil is released. There's one final war and then the new heavens and the new earth. And then the new Jerusalem descends from the sky that, that John talks about. And so if you will, if you're counting, this is not the third temple, which is the one that Jesus entered into that was rebuilt by the Jews under Nehemiah and Ezra and then restored under Herod. That was destroyed in 70 AD. It's also not the fourth temple, which is the one that's destroyed when Jerusalem is destroyed, when Jesus returns and everything changes. And it's not the final temple, which we would call heaven. It's the fifth temple. Okay? And that's why it gives a different law. Because the law of Moses is fulfilled in Christ. But during the millennial reign, there is still a on-earth way to manifestly, in the flesh, worship God. Okay? And so what this is then is what, uh, what Israel will look like when all of their promises are received resettled in the land, experiencing their inheritance, and not a Pax Romana, right, the thousand years of peace that we had under the Roman Empire, but a Pax Christi, a thousand years of peace as Jesus rules over the whole world, and at the center of Israel is a city and a temple, and the city is set up for sojourners. The other minor prophets, as we'll see, tell us that people will come from all over the world to worship the God of Israel here. Now, could this just be symbolic? Sure. But I would suggest to you that that's a mishandling of the prophets. Okay. When we look at what the prophets say about Jesus' first coming, we don't go, well, they were speaking symbolically. They were speaking literally. Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. Okay. And I would suggest here that that's the best way to explain why a committed Levite who's calling Israel to remember the Mosaic Covenant could feel comfortable laying out a new covenant, laying out a new law, a new way of being. It's why the festivals have been re-altered, because they're no longer remembering the Exodus, but the Exodus of Christ. That's why Passover is still there, right? Because what's at the heart of Passover for us as Christians? Communion. Okay, the Last Supper. That's why in Ezekiel's temple, there's no ark. 
It's not there. Jeremiah says the same thing. He says that there's a day coming where you'll forget the ark and we'll say, what ark? Why? Because the presence of God will be here in a new and, and wild way. Okay. And so Ezekiel here gives us one of the most thorough accounts of Israel in the days of the millennium. But at the end of it, he focuses on the city. The people of God dwelling in the presence of God. And that's where John steps in and he goes, it gets even better. Because one day, we'll dwell permanently with God and there will be no temple there because God himself and the Lamb will be in their midst and they will be his temple. They will be our temple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book, for its mysteries and its symbols, for its vision, for its meticulous detail. And I just want to stick with one image tonight, Lord. I want to think about that Dead Sea, a place where nothing can live. And when the river flows from the temple, it becomes teeming with life. And I know that each one is here tonight can testify to that reality, Lord, that we were dead soil and we now bear fruit. That you have, that, that you have replenished and rejuvenated and brought life into us. And we thank you, Lord, that that desire, just like that river stretching out to the east, to the lowest place on earth, to the deadest place on earth, that desire you have to bring life is universal. I pray, Lord, that we would even be part of that river because you promised that whoever believed in you from their hearts would spring up rivers of life. And I pray, Lord, that it flow out of our hearts into our families into our places of work, into our cities, to the ends of the earth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.